Hello friends, Tom here from wherever you are tuning in. I want to welcome you. This is now week two in our series where we're exploring the rewards of biblical fasting. Uh, we are titling this series, Teach Us to Fast, and we are looking to Jesus to be our teacher. Uh, not me, uh, not anybody else, not culture. We're looking to Jesus. He's our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Teacher, our Rabbi, our Creator. He is the one that defines what is true and what is best for us as His creation. And he talks specifically about this, this idea of fasting uh, as being one of the essential elements as a disciple of Jesus, okay? If you were with us last week in the, the very first message in this series, what we did was we laid a foundation for what biblical fasting even is, okay? We talked about how, how fasting is, is more than just like giving up food, uh, it's, it's more than just not eating. That's, that's, that's called dieting. <laughs> or, or worse, that's called starvation. Now, biblical fasting is different. We define biblical fasting as foregoing food to feast on God. Okay, we talked a bunch about, gave you different practical tips, talked about not just what fasting is, but why it's such an essential element in the life of a disciple. We talked about how to fast. Like I said, I gave you plenty of tips. So listen, really quickly. If you missed that message, if you haven't checked out kind of the week one message in our Teach Us to Fast series, pause this video, pause this podcast, wherever you're tuning in from, and go listen to that first. Okay, everything that we're going to cover in the subsequent weeks in this series is going to be, is, it's going to, it relies on the foundation that we laid in that very first message. It's super crucial, okay? So like I said, pause this video if you haven't checked that one out yet, go listen to that message, okay? Now, Starting this week and for the remainder of this series, what we're going to do together is we're going to explore different examples of the people of God fasting for specific reasons. So, so fasting with a specific agenda, okay? And like I said, we're going to use the scripture for our basis in this, not just what we think, but examples that we see in the word of God. And then what we're going to do as a church family is we're going to practice Fasting for that very same agenda that we see in Scripture, fasting together as a church family. Okay, and again, like, let me let me reiterate: fasting is more than just foregoing food; it is foregoing food to feast on God. And according to Jesus, fasting is an essential spiritual discipline in the life of any and every disciple. And listen, we want to be people who follow Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus, people who are learning to enjoy him, obey him, and operate like him in every single area of life. All right, so if you have a Bible nearby, go ahead and grab that. We're going to start today in Joel chapter 2, all right? And we're going to be talking about this idea of fasting for revival and awakening. Um, I'm looking forward to this, okay? So but before we jump into Joel chapter 2, I'm going to pray for us from wherever, you're turning in, from wherever you're turning in, I want to encourage you to just pray along with me. God, thank you for your grace that covers us. Lord, um, you are infinitely wise. You're all-knowing. And uh, we just ask you humbly, would you teach us, teach us to fast in this series, and specifically today, would you teach us about revival? Would you teach us about awakening? Would you teach us about how to be men and women who live lives of walking in faith, walking in step with your spirit. So bless us, God. Would you use me um, to serve anybody tuning in? 
I really want to honor them and honor you. So again, please just bless our time. Love you and trust you, Jesus. You're so good. Amen. All right, so Joel chapter 2, we're going to read two verses, verses 12 and 13. Here we go. It says this, Even now, this is the Lord's declaration, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, there's that word, fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Okay, first, what I want to do is I want to focus in on the appeal that we see here. The appeal that's made uh, through the prophet Joel from God himself to God's people. There's an appeal taking place here, and that appeal is this. You know, if you, I don't know if you caught it. It says, turn to me with all your heart. And then it says, return to the Lord your God. Friends, what's happening here is it's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. Do you know what repentance is? It is a vital part of the daily life of the Christian, okay? Repentance is massive. It's huge. Do you know what it is? You know, it's kind of funny, rather odd, that repentance in our culture has kind of become synonymous with apologizing, right? So, like, I'm sorry, right? I did something wrong. I'm sorry. I'm I'm repenting to you. Repentance certainly involves apologizing, okay? Absolutely. But it is so much more than that, okay? Repentance is more than I'm sorry. Biblical repentance is a reorientation, okay? Now, you guys probably know this, but the Bible was written in Hebrew and in Greek. Old Testament, primarily Hebrew, New Testament, and Greek. In the original Hebrew, when it speaks of this idea of repentance, it speaks of turning away, okay? And the original Greek speaks of changing the mind, So, what I want you to hear is, biblical repentance is more than I'm sorry. Biblical repentance is a reorientation of both the mind and the will. Okay, a reorientation of your thoughts and your actions, your deeds. Now listen, we have to talk about sin for a second. Because what sin is, is it's a turning away from God. I mean, think about it, right? If, 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 if you sin, you're, you're, you're turning away from God. You're away from him and his ways. It's a rejection of him as king. It's a rejection of his lordship, his rule, his reign, his way. So when we sin, we're turning away from God and we're introducing separation into a relationship. He's creator, we're creation. And now, because of sin, we're turning away from God. And the result of that is that now there's, in, there's separation or division that's introduced into that relationship. Now, I want to be clear, okay? The Apostle Paul is... is he is, he is very, very clear when he writes that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, right? Nothing can separate us from that intense and powerful love for the Christian, the child of God, the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So listen, when I talk about the separation, it's not a separation of God's love. That's not what's happening here. God isn't the one who's introduced the separation that the, the sinner has, right? So, so sin is this idea of turning away from God repentance is turning from the person who's turned away from the sinner. Repentance is turning away from sin and then turning to God. Okay. So you get this picture. Have you ever been, um, driving maybe before GPS was a thing and everyone had a cell phone in their pocket. You've ever been driving 
and you, re and you realize that you're driving in the wrong direction. Whenever that happens, what do you do? You turn around, you make a U-turn, right? Repentance is like making the U-turn. It's, it's turning away from sin and turning towards God. It's a reorientation of both the mind, what you believe to be true, and the will, what you do, your actions. That's repentance. So really quickly, have you ever thought, have you ever considered about how absolutely incredible it is that God even allows for repentance? Think about this for a second. Like, God has every right to just destroy the sinner. I mean, he's God. He calls the shots. And when anyone disobeys him or rejects him or, or, or turns away from him, rejects him or his ways, he has every right to just smash them. Okay? Like, he would be completely good and completely just in doing so. I mean, think about it. When we sin... The scriptures are clear. First and foremost, when we sin against God or anybody else, we're primarily sinning against him. We're disobeying him. But consider this. When we sin against other people, like we're, sin hurts people that God loves. He would be completely good and just in just destroying the sinner. Okay? It is amazing, my friends, that God even allows for repentance. And not just that he allows it, but he invites the sinner to repent. Think about that. Listen, I want to tell you the whole story of the Bible in about one sentence. Okay, here's what it is. You have the holy and perfect God of the universe who creates humans, who keep sinning against him and each other, and yet over and over again, generation after generation, God invites those sinners to repent. I mean, look back at our passage in Joel. I want to read it again. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12, in the middle down there. It says, turn to me. There's that word, turn. The glorious U-turn, right? Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. Listen in. For he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. This is amazing. It's incredible that God even allows sinners to repent, let alone invites them to. God's grace. It's grace. Let us never be people who move on from the radical, amazing, satisfying reality of grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. That the God of the universe wouldn't just allow repentance, but he would invite us to it instead of destroying us? Man, it's his kindness that leads a person to repentance, Romans says. Now listen, what's also amazing is what happens when a sinner repents. Okay, so you have the picture of this glorious U-turn, right? The picture, the picture of someone turning away from sin and turning towards God again. So listen, the outcome of when a sinner repents is that they're now turning away from sin. They're turning away from it, which means there's, there's a salvation from sin, a saving from sin, a freedom from sin, and it's, and it's, it's brokenness and it's devastation and the pain and, the, and even death. Like, it's salvation, Saving from sin, away from sin. And not only that, but it's experiencing then the gracious and forgiving embrace of God. 
a reconciled relationship, closeness where there was separation and division. Repentance is this glorious U-turn where we turn away from sin and we experience freedom from it and we get to experience the grace of the embrace of God. I love it. And when this glorious U-turn, this this repentance, this turning to God happens on a large scale, right? Many people happening, happening to many people. That's what's known as revival and awakening. Okay, I have a quote for you. Greg Laurie, he's a pastor and really just a, a gifted evangelist here in Southern California. His ministry for been ministering for decades. Says this about revival and awakening. Quote: The words revival and awakening are often used interchangeably, but there is a distinction. So really quickly, he's saying they kind of get used as synonyms, but they're different. Okay, he says this, an awakening takes place when God sovereignly pours out his spirit and it impacts a culture. That is what happened during the Jesus Revolution, and it's what happened in multiple spiritual awakenings in the history of the United States, predating predating its establishment as a nation. A revival, he says, on the other hand, is what the church must experience. It's when the church comes back to life, when the church becomes what it was always meant to be. It's a return to passion. I think many times we overly mystify the idea of revival, but we don't really need to. Another word, um, yeah, another word we could use for revival is restoration, restoring something to its original condition, end quote. Okay, so what I want you to see is I want you to see the difference between revival and awakening, okay? Revival happens inside the church, right? And think about it, to revive, it means to bring something back. There, there's a restoring that takes place, right? So it's, it, it, it's, it's a returning to God. It's, it, it's a coming back to him. It's the glorious U-turn, right? Awakening, on the other hand, is something that happens outside the church. Think about it, to awaken. To awaken means to wake up. It means to have your eyes opened. Okay? It's turning to God for the first time. Okay, so you have revival and you have awakening. And they're two sides of the same coin. Right? They happen in two different environments, inside the church, outside the church. But the same outcome takes place. It's a turning away from sin towards God. I want you to see this. Okay? Now listen, what I want to do, there are many examples of revival and awakening in the scriptures. Okay, tons of them. But what I want to do for the rest of my time, really quickly, is I want to share two examples with you today. Okay, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And in both of these examples, fasting, what we're talking about, right? Fasting plays an important role in both revival and awakening. Okay, now the first example I want to share with you is in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And before I jump into the scriptures with you, I want to kind of bring you up to speed. I want to give you some background of what happened before what we're about to read took place, okay? So if you've spent any time reading the Old Testament, you, you know that there's this like reoccurring pattern that we see, right? God's people, the Israelites, they keep rejecting and turning to idols. So they reject God and turn to idols, they are, they, are, they are worshiping, which is to ascribe ultimate worth, right, worship. So they're ascribing ultimate worth to created things instead of the creator. And there's this ongoing pattern of them turning from God and turning to idols, 
right? And as a result of that, what would happen is God would allow the surrounding nations to attack and defeat them. And one time, <clears throat> the Israelites, what they do is they, they mistreat the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And what they basically do is they, they use it like a, like a good luck charm in, in, in bringing people into battle, right? Bringing their soldiers into battle. Uh, if you're not familiar with what the Ark of the Covenant is, it's this, it's this chest, essentially, that God uh, had the Israelites build. And inside the chest is the Ten Commandments, right? The stone tablets that, that God delivers to Moses with the Ten Commandments, the law. Those are inside. They're placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. As well as uh, some manna, which is the, the miraculous food that God provided for his people as they're in the, in the wilderness, right? So you have the manna, you have the, the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and you also have Aaron's staff. You remember that story, uh, the staff that buds, right? <clears throat> so all those things inside the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the thing about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this, this ongoing reminder, this constant reminder of God's holy presence with his people. If you don't know this, God's heart is he wants to be present with his people. The very ones that turn away from him, he, he doesn't like that separation from his people. Okay, He wants to be with them. So, so the Israelites, God's people, they dishonor God and they mistreat the Ark of the Covenant. And as a result, God allows the Philistines to defeat Israel. What happens is the Philistines, they capture the ark. Okay, they take it back with them. And then what happens is they have the ark, the Philistines have the ark in their possession and God starts, <laughs> he starts terrorizing them. Like he, they, they put the ark in one of their, their false gods, their idols, uh, temples, right next to the statue of this false god. And they come back the next morning and the ark's right next to where the, the, the statue was, statues on the ground, broken apart, like all the arms and the legs are separated, all that's left is the torso. And they're like, whoa, this is weird. And then God starts inflicting all the people, all the Philistines in the region with tumors. And they're like, get this ark out of here. We don't want this thing anymore. Okay? That's where we pick up here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Follow along with me. It says this. So the people of Kiriath Yarim came for the ark of the Lord and took it. So they're taking it back and they took it to Abinadab's house on the hill. They consecrated his son, Eliezer, and took care of it, or to take care of it. Verse 2. Time went by until 20 years had passed and the ark had been taken to Kiriath Yarim. Listen to this. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel, the prophet, told them, If you are returning, there's that word, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you, the idols. Set your heart on the Lord and worship him only. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the asterisks, those are the idols, and only worshiped the Lord. Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. Listen to what it says. They fasted that day, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of revival, of mass repentance, 
of, of the glorious U-turn away from sin and back to God. And this is where the whole nation turns from sin, turns back to God. And listen to me, fasting played an important role. Okay, that's example number one. Example number two, up in the New Testament, John chapter four, maybe you're familiar with this story. It's classic, it's amazing. It's the, the story of the woman at the well. All right, so Jesus, what he ends up doing, he has his disciples with him, and he ends up going out of his way into Samaria to have this profound encounter with this woman. All right, and basically he tells her, you've been looking to men to quench like the deep thirst of your soul. And he tells her, they, they can't. There's, there's no way they can. Only God can quench that deep thirst. And then Jesus, if you remember the, the story, Jesus offers her living water that will eternally quench her thirst. He's offering himself to her. And that's where we pick up here in John chapter 4, starting in verse 28. It says this, Then the woman left her water jar. Remember, she's there at the well collecting water. She leaves her water jar went into town and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, right? Verse 30, so this is now the townspeople. They left the town and made their way to him. Okay, so the town comes out toward Jesus. Verse 31, in the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. There it is. Jesus is fasting. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 32. But Jesus said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I love what the disciple, I love how the disciples respond. The disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? And Jesus replies with this in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So, Jesus is fasting. Okay, he's foregoing food to feast on God. And he goes out of his way to minister to this woman. Okay, and then she goes back into the town. And then look what happens. Pick up in verse 39. Now, many Samaritans, it says, from that town believed in him. Because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Verse 41, many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Awakening to the savior of the world, a town, okay? Many people turning away from sin and turning to the savior, embracing Jesus. And friends, yet again, fasting plays an important role. How do we know? Because John includes it in the story. Listen, I wanna remind you of something that I shared with you last week. Fasting is incredibly beneficial. It is incredibly powerful. But fasting is not a spell. Fasting doesn't earn anything from God. Fasting is an act of faith. 
It's, it, it's trusting. It's an act of trust in God. When we fast, when we forego food to feast on God, we're saying, God, I need you more than I need food. I hunger for you more than I hunger for food. I'm, I'm more than just a physical being with a body who has an appetite, a physical appetite. I'm also a spiritual being with a spirit who has a spiritual appetite. And I want you. I hunger for you. It's turning to him. It's looking to him. It's trusting in him. That's what fasting is. Fasting is an act of faith. And like I said last week, you need to know, it gets God's attention in a profound way. Friends, what I want you to know is that when the people of God fast and pray, Scripture tells us that God has a history of sending revival and awakening. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill famously said, quote, as long as we are content to live without revival, we will. Listen, I don't know about you. I'm not content to live without revival. I'm not content to live without awakening. I want more of God. I hunger for him. In the deepest parts of my soul, just like that woman at the well, I thirst for him. And I look, we all look to things other than God all the time. And in his grace and in his loving kindness, he doesn't just allow for repentance, he invites it. I want more of him. I'm not content without revival, without awakening, without more of his kingdom. For me, for, for our church, for our entire valley, for our state, for our nation, for our entire planet. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Like, friends, there are people that I dearly love that, that have not turned away from sin and towards Jesus. And Jesus is super clear. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I know so many people who are, who are like spiritually fast asleep. They need an awakening. Even in this season, man, there's so much stuff going on. So much brokenness in front of our faces all the time. There are, there are lots of Christians right now who are drifting in this season. Okay, They're becoming more lukewarm to God and his ways. They need to be revived. I'll close with this. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to join me and my wife this week in prayer and fasting for revival and awakening mass repentance inside the church, mass repentance outside the church. Okay, and here's how I'm going to frame it. Prayer and fasting in kind of three spheres for, for you, me, your church, and others. You, your church, and others. Okay, so you would be like this, this idea of personal revival. It's the, it's the glorious U-turn away from sin and towards God. So it's a reorientation, right? A reorientation of the mind and the will, your thoughts and your actions. And the same exact thing, not just for you, but for your church family. Like, like, pray for them. Pray for them by name, for, for the men and women in your gospel communities, uh, for your brothers and your sisters. That glorious U-turn. Even for me, me and Herrick, we would love your prayers, your pastors, and then others. Those, those, those outside the church, those in desperate need of awakening. Friends, the, the, it's so incredible. God just, he doesn't just allow for repentance. 
He invites us to it. He invites us to it. So this idea of, of praying and fasting for, for a revival and spiritual awakening for others, for those outside the church, I mean, this could be one person. This could be somebody that in your life that you maybe have been praying to come to know the love of Jesus and experience his grace and turn away from sin and embrace uh, the, the loving arms of their heavenly Father. This could be one person you've been praying, with, praying for for a long time. This could be a friend, a neighbor, a family member. This could be a whole group of people. This could be an entire town or region or our nation, a people group, you name it. Listen, can you think of anything more important to pray and fast for than this? I can't. So I wanna invite you, this week, from sundown on one day to sundown the next day. Me personally, I'm going to break my fast with my gospel community. We meet for the Lord's Supper on Tuesday evenings. So I'm going to fast. I'm going to, I'm going to not have dinner on Monday night and then not eat again until dinner with my gospel community around the table on Tuesday night. I want to invite you to join me in this and cry out to God in prayer and in fasting for revival and, and, and awakening turning to God, mass repentance. Will you pray with me right now? Father, our desire is to be close to you. And our poor choices, our sin, the ways that we resist you, the ways that we reject you in the process, um, they introduce division in our relationship. And thankfully, we have Jesus our loving Savior, inviting us to repent. Our Savior who lived a life that we never could and died the death that all of us deserve, the punishment for sin. And now we have the opportunity to receive your gracious invitation to repent. So Lord, I pray for revival and awakening on the personal level, for myself, for anybody tuning in, I pray revival and awakening um, over our church and the churches in our valley and the churches in our nation and the churches in our, in, in our, in our entire planet. God, we, we want more of you. We want to be close to you. So would you help us? And would you hear our prayers collectively as our church intentionally with faith, with beautiful, pure motives to see, to see ourselves and others closer to you because of your gracious invitation? Would you pour out a blessing on our church as we pray and fast, as we cry out to you this week? We love you, Jesus, and we are grateful for your grace. Mm. Amen. Friends, know that I love you dearly. Grace and peace to you. Next week, we're going to share another agenda that we'll be fasting, but this week, I want to encourage you, press in. Press in. Cry out to God in prayer and fasting and do it together. Okay? Love you so much. Take care.